To most of us, the name Cleopatra refers to just one woman, the tragic queen of ancient Egypt and doomed lover of Mark Antony. Elizabeth Taylor portrayed her for Hollywood all raven-haired with those come-hither coal-rimmed eyes. But there was, as it turns out, another Cleopatra who was also a ruler, a queen and a survivor. Her history, though, has laid dormant for thousands of years. So now, together, let's rediscover Cleopatra Cellini, daughter of Cleopatra, Queen of Egypt, and Mark Antony. She lived a life every bit as dramatic as her infamous mother's, but very little has been known about her until now. Dr Jane Draycott is a historian, archaeologist, and lecturer at the University of Glasgow, and critically has just released the first modern biography of Cleopatra Cellini. Jane, congratulations on the book, and welcome to LNL. Thank you for having me. I'm very glad to be here. Now, could we start uh, by your describing for us how you first discovered Cleopatra Cellini? I believe it's got something to do with an antique dish. Well, it's it's a very roundabout way, to be perfectly honest. I was doing my PhD at the University of Nottingham and my PhD was on health and healing in Greco-Roman Egypt. So I was looking at medicine and magic and religion. And one of the things that I was looking at was the way that animal uh, parts were used in medicine and crocodiles are uh, fairly fairly unique to Egypt in this period. They are used in, in art as, as a symbol of Egypt. And I came across Cleopatra Cellini because she uses the crocodile as one of her personal symbols. And Once I started looking through the material culture of of that period of the mid to uh, late first century BCE, I found other artistic representations of her. And yes, the the most significant one, the most most dramatic and exciting one to to look at is the uh, silver bowl from Boscoriale. The, at the, it was found at the Villa della Pisanella, which was buried by the eruption of Vesuvius in 79, amongst a, a huge collection of, of fabulous silverwork. Uh, but this particular bowl, it depicts a woman wearing an elephant scalp. And uh, that woman, it has been suggested, is Cleopatra Cellini. Now, there's a little bit of a, a time lag between that conclusion and the dishes discovery or the silverworks discovery, isn't it? It was excavated, as you say, at this site just outside Pompeii in 1895. But it's not until 1983 that a German archaeologist, Andreas Linfert, says, you know what, I don't think this is the original Cleopatra we're all thinking it is. This is someone different. This is her daughter. Yes. Well, you have to bear in mind that this this dish is just one piece in a hoard of silver, which is, is around 100 pieces in total. So when people were getting to grips with all of this silver, there were other pieces that were more immediately obvious and interesting to them. So there are representations of the Emperor Augustus, of the Emperor Tiberius, of the General Germanicus. There are all sorts of fun little skeletons dancing and things like that. So this particular dish was not necessarily one of the things that immediately caught the eye of people who were working on it. And when the time came for them to pay attention to this dish, well, the identity of the woman in question is something that is 
very much debated. And so over the course of, of the century, there were various suggestions made that the earliest one, the most obvious one to, to most people is that it's a personification of Africa, because in this period, geographical personifications tend to be female and they tend to have certain specific symbols, attributes with them. And the elephant scalp is seen as one of the symbols of Africa in this period because elephants are, are you know, the one, another African animal like the crocodile. So it was suggested it could be Africa. Later, it was suggested it could be Cleopatra VII, the Queen of Egypt that we're all familiar with because there's an asp and there are a few other things uh, alongside the portrait on the dish. And so nobody was really in agreement. And then eventually it was suggested, hang on, it doesn't quite make sense for this to be Africa based on all of the other iconography on the dish. Doesn't also quite make sense for it to be Cleopatra based on all the other iconography on the dish. But it could be Cleopatra Cellini. So tell me about Cleopatra Cellini herself. Was she the only child of, of Queen Cleopatra and Mark Antony? No, she was not. She's one of three. She and her fraternal twin brother, Alexander Helios, they are born first. And then three years later, their younger brother, Ptolemy Philadelphus, is born too. So Antony and Cleopatra had three children together in addition to their separate children with other people. That that there feels like a buried fact. I mean, I'm, I'm not particularly knowledgeable in ancient history and histories of ancient Egypt, but I don't remember in the popular representation around Cleopatra and Mark Antony, there being three kids who needed to be fed every evening. There are a couple of reasons for that. First and foremost, it's a matter of the ancient sources because the the Romans, and it's the Romans who are mainly writing about Cleopatra and Antony, they write about them in a, in a particular way. And they don't care generally about children. Childhood is not something that Roman sources go into a huge amount unless there's some amazingly significant event that can be used to foretell something in the future when people are, of course, writing in hindsight. So because the children are not particularly historically significant as far as the Roman writers are concerned, who are writing you know, 50, 100 or more years after their, their lifetimes, they don't really feel the need to focus on them. There is also the fact that during this whole period, there was a lot of effort made by Augustus and by the people around him to erase Antony uh, from the the, the general uh, cultural environment to do the same to Cleopatra, where they, where they couldn't criticise her and, and blame everything on her. They, they just wanted to sort of minimise her presence. So the sources are doing that uh, in, in antiquity. And then, of course, our later perception is, as as you you introduced this this uh, this section about the the tragic love affair, children are not really compatible with with these sort of sexy tragic romance aspect of Antony and Cleopatra's relationship that contemporary culture is is the most interested in. So Cleopatra Cellini is and her brothers presumably are are they. Uh, what age are they when their parents commit suicide? What what does that mean for their fate when it occurs? So they're very young. Cleopatra Cellini and Alexander Helios are around 10 years old and Ptolemy Philadelphus is around six. And it's their youth that protects them in many ways because their their older brother, their older half-brother, uh, Caesarian, Ptolemy, Ptolemy Caesar, who was the son of Julius Caesar and Cleopatra, 
and their older half-brother, Anthony's son, Marcus Antonius Antillus, they are seen as adults, being around uh, the age of sort of 16 or so. They're seen as adult males and therefore threats because they can lead armies, they can have political careers that can be dangerous and, and they can be rivals to Augustus. So the fact that they're adults means that, unfortunately for them, they're they're uh, going to die. Whereas for the children, it's it's harder to to get away with murdering uh, three children, and there is also the the hope, the the ambition that they can potentially be re-educated and uh, repurposed by Augustus by Rome to do something beneficial. So Octavian's uh, the man who conquers or the leader who who conquers uh, Egypt. He has the spoils at hand, these three children. And as you say, I guess a wish to make them Roman as part of the conquering of that empire. What does he do with them? So Octavian, yes, in this period uh, where he has charge of the children, he is gradually consolidating his hold on Rome. The Roman Republic has fallen, but he presents himself as restoring the Republic, when in actual fact what he's doing is constructing what is essentially a monarchy with with himself as, as the sole ruler. And he very carefully brings everybody together. So he, he takes charge not just of Antony and Cleopatra's children, but also Antony's other children. And he brings them into his household and into his family with a view to creating a sort of um, a unity. It's, it's He talks about restoring peace and stability and prosperity to Rome. And one of the ways that he he does this visibly is, is to amalgamate his family and Antony's family. And in fact, the Julio-Claudian dynasty, except for the Emperor Tiberius, all the rest of the Julio-Claudian emperors are descended from Antony. So am I right in thinking that by the time she has been Romanized, or she's been brought back anyway into the, the Roman fold, she's becoming a teenager, presumably there's a strategic marriage waiting for her? Yes. So she's brought to Rome and she lives in Rome in the household of Octavian and his wife Livia. So she's brought up from the ages of 10 to around 15 in this Roman household. And it would have been very, very different to her Egyptian upbringing, because one of the things Octavian likes to do is present himself as being no better than anybody else, living in a relatively humble household and and being very traditional with his women folk, weaving all of his own clothes and things like that. So very, very different to to the glamorous, luxurious royal lifestyle she would have had in Alexandria. And yes, in this period, the age of 10 to 15, there is, of course, puberty. And for the Romans, once girls go through puberty, they are marriage material. You want to get them married off as quickly as possible because there are lots of beliefs surrounding women and their sexuality. And you need to control that and make sure that they channel their sexuality into having legitimate children to benefit the family. So what do you do with someone like Cleopatra Cellini? Who can you marry her to? Because bearing in mind, she, at this point, her two brothers have seemingly died. They disappear from the historical record. So she is the last remaining member of the Ptolemaic dynasty. She is the last person with any sort of rival claim to the kingdom of Egypt that 
Octavian has worked very hard to turn into a Roman province and and, uh, keep personal control over. So he has to think about what he's going to do with her and who could possibly be a suitable husband for her that is not an embarrassment to to her and her status and her station, but also not a threat to him and his status and station. And who does she end up with? She ends up with a young man called Gaius Julius Juba. And he, like her, is the child of a deceased North African ruler. His father was King Juba of Numidia. He chose the wrong side in the civil war between Julius Caesar and Pompey the Great, and he committed suicide uh, when he was defeated during the course of that. Caesar seized his kingdom, seized his his wealth, his possessions, and, and uh, his son as well. And Juba would have been um, a baby or, or a toddler when this happened. So he was taken back to Rome. He was raised in Caesar's household until Caesar's assassination. Then he was raised in Octavian and Octavia's household. And because he was so young, he would have had no memory of North Africa. He was brought up entirely as a Roman, as his Roman name, Gaius Julius Juba, suggests. He was educated, given the best of everything. He he was fluent in Latin and Greek. He became uh, very well known for his scholarship. And he seems to have been a very intelligent, cultured young man. And it's him that is matched with Cleopatra Cellini. So, Jane, you have this pair... I'm guessing Rome doesn't want them to become too powerful, but at the same time, they're they're ready to rule in some form if they can be, you know, if their talents can be directed in the right way. So where do they rule? So Octavian is nothing if not resourceful. He's got these two uh, North African royal family members. So he decides he's going to send them to North Africa. And there is the sort of northwestern part of Africa that was kingdoms. Uh, it was there was uh there were two kingdoms that we don't necessarily know very much about. We know we know who their kings were, and their kings were likewise part of, of the civil wars in this period and, and were on different sides and seem to have conveniently died uh at, at some point. And so this entire huge expanse of territory just opposite Spain uh, is needing to be taken care of. This is kind of Morocco, Algeria territory, is that right? Yes, it's it's what we today know as as Morocco and Algeria. And so Cellini, Cleopatra Cellini, does in fact become a queen. She does. Well, she she is technically, she's a queen in her childhood because Antony uh, gives her territory, gives her Crete and the Cyrenaica. And you could also say technically, as soon as her mother uh, dies, she is queen of Egypt. But in actuality, when she's an adult woman, she gets sent to North Africa to rule the kingdom of Mauritania, as as they call it, different from the, the modern country of Mauritania, which is spelled differently and is further south. So tell me, she she becomes a queen. She has a period of ruling together with Juba, but then... She she dies quite young, is that right? Yes, she and Juba seem to rule Mauritania very capably, very successfully for around 20 years. And then at some point towards the very end of the first century BCE, or perhaps the, the very beginning of the first century CE, it seems that she dies, unfortunately. And it is early, she's around 35 years old. So the... 
one possible cause of this is, is, as with so many other ancient women, something to do with complications in pregnancy and childbirth. Tell me, do you think there's ever chance? I mean, we know the story of her mother so, so well, and you've explained very well why it is perhaps we didn't ever learn quite as much about Cleopatra Cellini. But what do you hope to achieve, I guess, by digging into her history and writing this first modern biography of her? What I really wanted to do was provide an example of a different sort of ancient woman. We we are very familiar with, with some ancient women and they tend to conform to certain um, stereotypes, archetypes. So we have this, this habit in the ancient sources, there is this habit of setting women up against each other. So you have the very virtuous woman. And in, in this particular period, that's Octavia, that's Octavian's sister, Octavia, Antony's wife. And for there to be a virtuous woman, there has to be uh, a not virtuous woman, uh, you know, the, the bad woman to this good woman. And that is Cleopatra. And these are very sort of simplistic ways of, of looking at all of this. And, and so what I wanted to do was provide yet another perspective and say that we can construct an ancient woman's life, an ancient woman who was doing important international things, who had power, who had influence, who was intelligent, who was cultured. And she's not presented as a paragon of virtue and she's not presented as a disgraceful whore. She's got far more to her than these very simplistic binaries. Jane, it's a fascinating story. Thanks so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. Jane Draycott is a historian, archaeologist and lecturer at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. Her new book is called Cleopatra's Daughter, Egyptian Princess, Roman Prisoner, African Queen. It was published by Head of Zeus and is available in Australia from Bloomsbury. Getting in touch with ABCRN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.